Several weeks ago, I uh, attended the Arts Girl Dinner, which was held in a uh, very fancy hotel in Brooklyn, and there was well over a thousand people attending. Um, and it was an honor of Rabbi Zlatowicz, Zechrein Levracha. It was a very impressive evening. It was the, uh, I guess, the who's who of uh, American Jewish life, both in terms of Rabbonim and in terms of Balabatim. And they showed a film about Rabbi Zlatowicz's life, which was very impressive. As you know, I, uh, I wrote a few books for Arts Girl, and I had a very close Kesher with Rabbi Zlatowicz, and uh, I consider him a mentor, and he had a delightful sense of humor. He was a very tough businessman, very brilliant mind, and a very creative soul. And I was always a little bit jealous, or very jealous, of Rabbi Zlatowicz, because to me he was somebody that was doing something that I wish I had done. He wasn't a, uh, a you know, a, he was a very, he was, I felt that I had all of the kalim that he had to do what he did. And so, obviously, he did it, and I didn't, and, I, uh, and maybe it's ludicrous even to compare myself to him, but in a certain level, I was jealous of him. Until that dinner, because at that dinner, I realized that I could never have done what he did. Even if I had lived back in the day before Art Scroll, and I was there exactly then, he had two things that I discovered about him that night that I would not have been able to do, and it was absolutely necessary for him to have done that in order to accomplish what he did. You know, today, Arts Girl is a very big operation, and it's, uh, everyone knows the success of Arts Girl. It's very hard to find any table in the base medrash or any table in any base medrash or any shul that doesn't have at least half the table full of art scroll sarim. If it's a sitter, if it's a machzer, if it's a chumash, if it's a, a tehillim, if it's a, a gemara, bavli, or shalmi. And it's a... So you think of it as like, okay, that's very cool. It's very, uh, you know, you probably just... And how did he fund this? He funded Schattensteins and very big Gevirim, dedicators, sponsors. And so all he had to do was basically get a, a very good team of Tamidich Chachamim and then find people that are willing to support this, uh, this endeavor and, and you, make a, you make an art scroll. But in the early years of Art Scroll, it wasn't so simple. It started off, Art Scroll, as not a uh, publishing house. They started off as a calligraphy, a graphic design studio. Rabbi Zlatowicz was very artistic, and he made diplomas and smicha scrolls and invitations. Very artistic, Jewish artistic thing. That's why they call it Art Scroll. <coughs> And it was only um, because he had lost a, a very close friend of his who died in his sleep one night, and he decided that he wanted to do something with Zechon Ishmasai, that he wrote his first book, which was a commentary on Megillus Esther. He wrote it in a month day and night. He literally did not eat and did not sleep for an entire month. He was busy day and night writing this commentary. He had Rabbi Sherman write the overview for that commentary. They put this book together like overnight, very quickly. And they thought it would, you know, just L'Zeich and say they would put out, maybe print a few thousand copies and it would, you know, maybe B'Kaishi sell 
but it tapped into something that was just an unbelievable thirst that Klal Yisrael had for such type of literature. And that first printing quickly ran out. All the farm stores demanded more. And I think that first Hanukkah, they so, uh, that first Purim, rather, they sold over 20,000 copies of this one brand new Sefer. And they knew they were onto something. So they hired uh, a larger team and they put out within that first year, Rabbi Zlatowicz himself wrote all the five Megillas, and then they wrote others for him, and before you knew it, it was growing and growing and growing by size and by popularity. But those days, it was very difficult to, to make money doing what he was doing. They didn't realize yet at that point that they could start a foundation called Masara Heritage Foundation that would be enable them to get money from Balabatim, like the Schattensteins and many others, and that would somehow be able to fund the scholarship that was being produced in the Gemaras and, 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 and such things, and then be able to sell it on another arm of a for-profit. It was a very delicate dance, but they didn't realize they could do it yet. Somebody came to them and told them about it, and, and that's why they were able to do the next phase of Art Girl. But those early years, they didn't realize yet that they were able to do this. And he had to pay his bills. There was, you know, the office and the staff and uh, the printing expenses. This was very expensive things. And he had to literally mortgage his house to cover the expenses in the early years. That was the dedication that he had to this mission that all of a sudden he realized was his. He found his mission in life at that point, and it wasn't yet known that it would be the success that it was, but he all of a sudden went from being a, uh, an invitation maker, a graphic artist, to being the architect of perhaps the greatest Torah dissemination project in, in Jewish history. But at the moment that he discovered that this was his mission, he focused like a laser on accomplishing it, and come what may, the mysterious nefesh that he had was unparalleled. I don't know if you realize what it is to mortgage your house. You have a house, you're, you're married, you have children, you have a roof over your head, and you don't want to lose that house. That's the one basic staple of life that a person wants and needs. And to mortgage it means to go to the bank and basically say, I'm borrowing money against that house to pay my employees, to pay my staff, to pay the costs. And I might lose the house. If I can't repay the bank, then I lose the house. That's the way it works. The bank doesn't want to hear about your dreams. The bank just wants their money back. And... That was the first lesson that I learned about Rabbi Zlatowicz that night that made me understand that he was a unique person. It wasn't just luck and it wasn't just a, you know, a nice dream and boom, you have Arthro. The mysterious nefesh of mortgaging one's house and being able to put everything on the line in order to accomplish this mission is I think the first building block in creating a person of his stature. It proves that he didn't need everything easy. We, we need in life everything just so. Everything has to be perfect. We have our, our salary, we have our house, we have our car, we have our this. And then I'm going to do something on the side if it works great, otherwise not. But in order to really be successful in life, you need to have a, such a, a yearning to accomplish what you see as being your mission that you're willing to put everything on the line. You're willing to max out your credit card if need be in order to accomplish this. And there are people, many people that do this, by the way. But it's those types of people that are able to be successful on that level in life. The second thing that I learned about Rabbi Zlatowicz and it was really through the biography that they gave out at the dinner 
and you could buy it today in farm stores. They're, they're being sold, which it's an amazing book. It's really something that I would recommend you reading over the summer. It's, uh, I think it's very inspirational. And this is something that's Nagea this week's parsha, and that's sort of why I wanted to uh, segue it. If you uh, if you were wondering what the connection was to this week's parsha, if at all, there's a very famous mug in Avram in Hilchas Tainis in Simon Tafkov Pei Sifkaton Tess, and the mug in Avram there brings a minig that exists in some kehillas that this Friday, Yom HaShishi of Parshas Chukas, people used to fast. And he brings the Makar from the Shibale Aleket. The Shibale Aleket writes the following, Once we're talking about the laws of Tainus and, the, and about the Indian of burning of the Tyra, he says, I want to tell you what happened in our times. This was in the year twelve forty four. Others say 1242, 1244. There were these famous 24 wagon loads of Talmuds that were burned in France. As we have heard the news, and the Rabbonim that were present at that terrible moment when 24 wagons full of Gemaras were burned, they made a Shalom, Shalom, they asked in a dream, what was the purpose of this? Is this a Gezeira? From the Rabbeinu Shalom, ve'ishivu lahem v'dah gezeiras araisa, and the response was, "This is in fact, this is indeed a gezeira dairaisa." Upirushai b'aimvav zayshukas hatayra hiagzeira, and the understanding was that if you look in the targum of zayshukas hatayra at the beginning of this week's parsha, the targum says. The dog Gezeras Ereisa. And that Targum was the quote that was given to the Rabbanim who asked the Shalas Kalaim. And that's why the Minigas, even though normally we fast on the day, on the calendar day when something happens, here we fast every, the, those that fast, fast on Friday of Parshas because it's very much interwoven with the Parsha that that Arab Shabbos. This is a decree from the Rabbi Nishon. This is the Torah's decree that such a terrible, tragic event should take place. From that day on, Yechidim were kaveya for themselves to fast by Bechal Shana Vashana every day, every year. Just parenthetically, the reason that they say that the Gemaras were burnt at that place was because a few years earlier, as we know, there was a, a lot of opposition to certain of the Svarim of the Rambam, and such as the Marinabuchim and, and the Sefer Amada, and they, the people, the opponents of the Rambam were so upset at his svarim, and they felt that it was they were that they were not appropriate these svarim, that they burned these svarim, the Rambams, and it was supposedly on that very place that a few years later, 
these Gemaras were burned. Now, if you're asking, you know, it's very hard to understand what is the, we understand it's tragic if any safer gets burned, but why was it such a historic event? Meaning, okay, so 24 wagons of, of Gemaras were, were burned. That's not a good thing, but is it something that, you know, you have to understand in those days, there, this was before the printing press, and it was so rare to find a single Gemara. Gemaras were, you can imagine if I tell you here, go take a pen and a, and a, and a notepad and, and copy over the entire Gemara. It's like, that would take you a very, very long time. And to do it just so and write with the right your size and, and I don't know if there were Mepharshim around the Gemara at all, but whatever it was, it was, a, it was a very expensive and very rare thing to find one single volume of Gemara. And so now multiply this by thousands of Gemaras that they were able to accumulate the Gayim by the order of the Pope and the, and the French king together. They colluded together and they gathered every Gemara that they could find. And so this was a tremendous tragedy. There, was no, there weren't that many Gemaras to begin with. And so this was, I don't know the percentage of the amount of Gemaras that this represented, but it was major. This was like not an insignificant number of Gemaras. These were perhaps rave of the Gemaras in Europe, perhaps, that were taken here. But this was a Gezeira Dairaisa, and many understood this to be clearly a divine act of revenge against those people who went and they burnt the Svarim of the Rambam in that vicinity. So in this biography of Rabbi Zlatowicz, I read that every Friday, a Parshas Chukas, he would send emails or call up his children and remind them of the tragedy of this day. To Rabbi Zlatowicz, it was a very personal day this Friday because being that he made his mission to proliferate Tyra, he understood what a safer is. He understood what the Kedushas HaSefer is. He understood what the importance of every Sefer is. And he was able to identify with this day. It wasn't just a day like, okay, that's interesting that in, you know, in, the, in the Middle Ages this happened to some, you know, in some city in, in Paris and in some... Okay, no, what is it Negei to us? Is anyone crying over here? This is, by the way, because of this event, the Maram Rottenberg wrote the famous Kinnan Tishabov of Shali Sufa Baish, he was present at the time of this burning. He saw it. And he recorded in his beautiful Kinnah that we say on Tishabov all of the details of what happened. But we don't necessarily feel a relationship to that. It's, these were Svarim Bachashem. Today we have so many Svarim. What's, why is that so tragic to us today? How do we relate to that? And it's not hard. But Rabbi Zlatowitz related to it personally because this was his mission in life. He wasn't doing his job in order to make a living. He wasn't doing his job in order, to, uh, in order just merely to, to sell books. He felt that this was his divinely inspired mission. He saw that this was his life's calling and he never lost focus. And he saw everything that he did as part of that mission. I once asked him, when he was starting to put out the Yerushalmi, he was very proud of the Yerushalmi that he was translating, I was like, who are you doing this for? I mean, the Babli, I understand, that's a commercially viable enterprise. Every time another Dafyemi Mesefta starts, everybody has to get the new volumes, and, you know, every... Dafyaimi cycle, every new CM Ashash, you can imagine how many people are ordering the brachas and but you show me how many people could would want to own this? How many people could buy it? Is anyone going to use this besides for Yechidim? And he told me this is not for commercialism, this is for Kal Yisrael. He says he has the team, he has all these Samina Khacham, he has a Kailal, he called it you know, all across the world that are sitting day and night and working on these svarim, and he has the funding, and he's doing this for Kal Yisrael. And that's how he saw everything. That's how he saw his mission in life. But 
he found his mission. He said he never, he never took vacations because he was so driven by his mission, it says, that he, couldn't, he didn't want to deviate from his, from his assignment. Every day he understood, this is what I am alive for. Not alive to go sit on a, on a beach somewhere. I'm, I'm, I'm put here for a divine mission, and this is what I want to do, this is what I have to do. And he felt this Friday a personal connection because he understood that the tragedy of Klai Yisrael losing all of these svarim and how it must have impacted them, the tragedy of not having Gemaris, the tragedy of not being able to just have access to svarim, he felt it personally because this was his mission. When they started putting out the French art scroll Gemaris, they translated it into, into French, some of them, and I guess they're going to go through Shas. So he went to Paris to meet with the scholars that were in charge of that project, of the, the French scholars that were going to translate the Shas, and they took him to that place where the Svarim were burnt. We know exactly where it is. I think, I'm not sure, but I think it's the, if anyone's been to Paris, by the Louvre, there's like a very famous museum where the Mona Lisa is, and in the middle of the Louvre there's like a glass pyramid that they put up, and I think somebody told me once that that's the Mukram that they, that they burnt. I'm not sure if that's true, but they took Rabbi Zlatowicz to that place and he was very moved that at the place of the burning of the Talmud of those 24 wagon loads in, in the 1200s that he went back to that place and that's where he was starting to republish Gemaris that would be able to be used by many, many people that would otherwise not be able to open up a Gemara. What a wonderful thing it is in life to be a Rabbi Zlatowicz. To be able to find exactly what your mission is and to live every day with a passion of carrying out that mission so beautifully. Could you imagine how happy we would be we would never sleep late. We would never wake up late. We would never, uh, you know, be burned out. We would always be happy. You know, when a person is sad and depressed, most of the time it's because they don't really know what their mission is in life. They're not sure. What am I going to do? What am I supposed to be doing? What does God want from me? And so because we don't know, everything is very iffy, and I don't know if I'm supposed to be this, I don't know if I'm supposed to be that. I'm doing it, I'm not happy, but I'm trying. And when a person is really productive, even if it's very hard work, but if you know that this is really what you love doing, you're the happiest person in the world. You know that feeling. It might be a feeling that you have when you're preparing a chabura to give and you're so teeth deep in the sugya, and you're just pacing back and forth, just trying to think of the Rishayim and the Machlekes and the Nakudas and Machlekes and the, and trying to machadish things. There's nothing. There's no greater feeling than that. Why is it such a great feeling? Because you're in a zone. You're you're focused, and you feel your neshama feels like, wow, this is where exactly where I want to be. Sometimes it might come from other things that we're busy with. It might come from, if you want to be a doctor, you want to be a PA, you want to be a dentist, you want to be a lawyer, and you know exactly that that's what you want to be, and you're working towards that goal, you're a happy person. It might be terribly hard work. You have to pass MCATs, and you have to go to medical school, and you have to put it all on the line and take out tremendous student loan. But this is what I want to do. And knowing clearly that this is what I want to do makes me happy. Because the neshama loves clarity. The neshama hates wishy-washiness and, and gray areas. That's not the neshama. Rav Hutner used to say that there's no Switzerland for the neshama. There's no neutral area. Like, you have to be black or white. You have to be red or blue. You have to decide what you are in life and then just live that life. If you're just like a moderate the neshama doesn't like moderation. The neshama doesn't like mediocrity. 
The neshama doesn't like the safe path. The neshama likes knowing exactly what I am. What is my goal? Where am I going? What is my mission? What does the Rabbi Shalom want from me? And as soon as I'm able to understand that, I'm happy. As long as I don't, I'm not saying I'm necessarily sad, but I'm not, I'm not in the zone, I'm not excited to get up in the morning because I don't have a clearly defined plan. Those are the people in life that you have to be jealous of. The people in life, jealousy is a terrible midah. But one, my love, jealousy is when you find somebody that's doing that, see what he's doing and try to see how you can apply that in your own life. Not to copy what he's doing, but to be able to really see, wow, it's possible to find myself and then clearly to go after something. And that's the most beautiful life. The people that are really, that I'm jealous of are those types of people that really know exactly what they're doing and they're doing it and they're doing it as well as they can. There was another person that I was close with who was Nifter a few days ago. Also, a very, very important individual in Klal Yisrael. Not a household name, unless you were in that world. But his name was Rav Shimon Siegel. He's a friend of Levracha. He gave me my first job in Chinuch. He was Nifter last week, this week actually. I was in Toronto for a chas, otherwise I would have gone to his Levaya. It was on, uh, it was on Monday. And he, um, he was nifter. He was an old man. He was 95 years old when he was nifter. Never married. And he was the manal of Yeshiva's Terrace Emma's Kamenitz in Brooklyn for over 60 years. And like I said, he gave me my first job. He was the, he was the head of Kamenitz, which was where I was a 12th grade rabbi before I came here. And... He had that mission. He had that sense of mission that this is what I want to do. I want to be Mechanech Klal Yisrael's Kinderloch. And he had a very successful yeshiva from elementary school, from kindergarten, all the way until Beis Madras. She had this beautiful yeshiva. Was, uh, I, I love being there. I always wanted to make that, this yeshiva um, in the image of that yeshiva because there was a certain... Like almost like a camp atmosphere there. It was just a very wonderful um, place to be. Like the boys really loved being there, and it was just the, the rabbim were very geschmack and very warm, and, and there was a lot of camaraderie, and uh, you know, we did nice things with them on Shabbos, and uh, even though it was an in town yeshiva, we made kumzitzen with them, and, and it was just like a, a very close knit yeshiva, really achtos and geschmack and mishpachadik, and it was just a lovely, you know, place to go. So I was a 12th grade rabbi there, and um, one day Rabbi Siegel calls me into his office, and he, uh, he said, Rabbi Bamberger, there is a, uh, the 7th grade rabbi, um, he, was, he had eye surgery, he had eye issues, would you be able to take over his shear until he gets back? I said, yeah, but I'm giving the 12th grade. Yeah, well, you'll work it out. You'll be able to do both. I said, okay, I'll try it. So I went to, um, so I went to, he says, by the way, one thing, he says, you have to make a lot of carbonas. He says, you're used to 12th grade and the, boy, the older boys and they're, they're stelling to you or whatever. You have to go, these are seventh grade boys and they're very, you know, they, they, they have a lot of personality. You could do it, but don't show them Never smile at them. Don't show them that you're human. You have to come in and be very like a stormtrooper. Like come in and just like, you know, uh, be mean. Never show them the, the white of your teeth. Just, you know, just give them, you know, give them the shear. And don't, you know, and, and, and make carbonas. Just keep throwing them out. Send them to the manal. Send them to the manal. 
So I came into the shear, and these guys, it was like being in a shark tank. You know, these, uh, they, were, they, were, they were just waiting for, they smelled blood, they saw that I was a nice guy, and um, <coughs> and I really didn't want to make carbonas. I just wanted to have like a nice chill. I thought, you know, I'll just chill with them and we'll, we'll have a good... Anyway, to make a long story short, I, I, I figured out what to do. These kids needed a little incentive. So I said like this, listen, I'm going to be reading, I think we're learning Makis, I'm going to be reading Gemara Rashi Taisis. And occasionally I'm going to be skipping some words. Every time somebody catches the word that I skipped, you get $5. So these kids, they, if they loved killing substitute teachers, they loved money more. So they were like sitting like this, like mamish, like they looked like stiplers. I had like a room of stiplers. And, um, and like Rabbi Siegel passed by and he was like expecting me to be like crucified on the, on the, on the blackboard. And like he, uh, you know, he sees like mamish, like he, he didn't know like what was going on. And like the mamish, like they were like so. I, I, I rarely skip words, by the way, obviously. But um, <laughs> and once a day, just to. But um, one day there was uh, there was a uh, there was a kid that was a very bachenta boy, like a very cute kid, and he was like schmoozing with with the guys around him. So I, uh, I said, Ari, get out. He says, no, Rabbi, please don't send me that. I said, go, go, to, you know, go to Rabbi Restler. He was the manal of the elementary school. So um, that's your great uncle, right? So he said, um, so he said, no, Rabbi, please not. So anyway, finally I got him to, to leave, and like four guys, one on each side of him, gets up, and they started leaving with him. I said, I just kicked Ari. I didn't kick you guys out. He said, no, Ari's the president of our class, and we're his secret service detail. So if you're kicking Ari out, we all have to go with him. So I had such hanav from that that I started smiling, and then uh, I lost the whole class. But um, anyway, at the end of the week, when the Rebbe came back, Rabbi Siegel wanted to make me the manal of, because uh, Rabbi Respo was retiring, he wanted to make me the manal of the whole school. I said, Rabbi Siegel, I said, let me tell you something. I said, I, I lived right next door to Kamenetz. Mamish, I was like a 30-second commute to Kamenetz. And I said, Rabbi, every single day, um, I came home after I taught that shear, and I needed a big schnapps, a big, a big glass of schnapps, just to calm my nerves after that shear. He says, Rabbi Bamberger, that was your mistake. He says, you should have had that schnapps before you went into the classroom. <laughs> he was very funny, Rabbi Respo once, uh, Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Siegel once, um, he was driving in Borough Park, and he went through a red light. So, um, so a cop pulled him over, and uh, the cop says to him, Rabbi, didn't you see that uh, there was a red light? He says, Officer, to tell you the truth, I did see that the light was red. It was you that I didn't see. And uh, he had such a nod that he, he let Rabbi Siegel go. But Rabbi Siegel was driven by this mission. He was never married, he had no children, but he had such a clear understanding of what his mission was. And every day, till he was, he was 95, I think, Ad out like till the last day he was there, every single day, where other people were retiring and they were in old age homes and drinking borscht. And whatever. He, was, he was there every single day. He was there on Shabbos. He was there every single day. He was with Balabatim. He was raising money. He was traveling. He was going. He was, he had, he was very close during the war. He was in the Kovna Ghetto with Ramatzel Pagramansky. You know, he was uh, very close to Ramatzel. We have a lot of Tyre and a lot of stories from Ramatzel, the great Ramatzel Pagramansky we spoke about many times, one of Rav Gifter's Rebbeim. He was, he was the person that we have a Messiah from about Ramatzel. A lot of things that we know about Ramatzel Pagramansky was from Rabbi Siegel. 
And this is a man that was a legend, you know, 60 years ago. And he was just, he was just heilich umisgaber every single day. Rav Shagafai Mendelovitz, who was really considered to be the architect of Tyra in America, he said a great vart once. He says, we say in Davening on Rosh Hashanah, Maise ish of kudasai. Maise ish of kudasai. And what he understood this to mean is that there's a maise ish. We all do activities. Every day there are people that learn, there are people that work, there are people that do chesed. But what we're judged on Rosh Hashanah is not just merely the maise ish, what we did. We think, okay, how many mitzvahs did I do? How many others did I do? How, what was the quality of my mitzvahs? What was the intensity and the passion of my averis? He says that the din is maise ish versus pekudasai. Pekudasai means your mission in life. There's a maise ish that we all have, but it has to match the pekuda. It has to match our personal pekuda in life. We each have our own mission in life. And we have to figure out what that mission is because if we're not doing our mission, we might be doing a lot of great things, but it's not really fully the job that we were charged with. I think we all know the story that's told so many times about the Nitziv, who when he made a siyam on his Hamik Shaila, his classic Pirish on the Shiltis, he got up and he gave a very stunning drasha. And he says that I'll tell you why this theme is so poignant and so touching and so important for me. He says, when I was a little child, I was not so into learning. I didn't have zitzvah, I was a little bit of a troublemaker. And one night... I was sitting on the steps going down to the first floor of my house and I overheard my parents talking in the living room. My parents were saying to each other how they want to send me to a a trade school to learn a trade, to learn carpentry. Because he's not learning. The Rabbeim are saying that he's not learning, he has no interest in learning, He's he's uh, he's not cut out for learning. And so because of that, he'll learn a little bit every day, and then we're going to send him to a trade school. And at that point, I was so shaken, says the Nitziv, because I knew that I wanted to learn, I just didn't learn. And so I resolved then and there that I'm going to turn around my life and I'm going to really plug away. And he became the Nitziv. The Nitziv was a gadladar. There was no one like the Nitziv. Rashiva Velazhin, he wrote Svarim that Kla Yisrael lives on. The Nitziv was, was Einlan Ugadol. We don't have really many people to compare it to the Nitziv. And he says, now that I'm standing on the precipice of being Messiah this work, it's really important that I give a Shevach Ha'edayah because I would have died as a carpenter. And I would have gone up to Shemayim and they would have asked me, Where's your Hamik Dabar? Where's your Hamik Shaila? Where's your Merami Sada? And I would not know what they were talking about. I don't have Svarim. I could show you a catalog of my shenders and on my tables and on my chairs, but I can't, I don't know what you're talking about. What, do you, what, what, what is the Shiltis? But now I know that my mission in life was to be a Rosh Hashiva, to be a Machaber Svarim, and I have to be able to give Shevach to the Rabbi Shalom right now that I'm able to produce what I was exactly supposed to be producing. That's Maisei Ish of Kudasai. He would have been a very Erlich carpenter than Itziv. And there's nothing wrong with being a carpenter. Carpentry is great. But deep down inside, he would have always realized that, that this is not what I'm supposed to be. And it would have haunted him. 
And in Shemayim they would have mummed him for not being what he was supposed to be. His Maiseish would have been fine. But the Maiseish would never have been aligned to the Pekudasai. I remember when I was younger there was uh, commercials on TV. Somebody told me about it, of course. And it was, at the time, I think it was Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan was the goggle in basketball. There was... Uh, you know, it was unbelievable. I mean, you know, today there are people that are also very great in basketball, but Michael Jordan was a, was a sug bifneatsman. And so the commercial was that you had Michael Jordan in like a, um, he was dressed in like a Home Depot outfit. And he was working at Home Depot. And like they show him like he was like, uh, you know, he was helping people, you know, find the hammers, find the nails. And then, like, he would, like, crumple up a piece of paper and, like, you know, shoot from across the, the room and, and, like, swish it into, into like, a, a waste paper basket. And that's sort of what it's like when you're doing something and it's not the thing that you were designed to be. Michael Jordan would, be a fun, would work at Home Depot, would be great, but then he would never have been Michael Jordan. And this is the greatest challenge of our life. And it's something that I speak about a lot, as you might know. To try to really find what it is that makes you tick. What is it that excites you? What are you passionate about? And then try to figure out how are you going to be able to live your life accordingly. Everything is doable. You're young. You're all extremely capable. You're all talented. But you're so lucky that you're young enough still to be able to figure out what it is that you want to do and do it with a passion. There was once a, a Talmud that I have who came to me one night later, I remember, and he says, Rabbi, I love it here, but... None of the majors that they offer are, are, um, are to my liking. All these shivasha majors that we have here, it's not really what I want to be. I don't want to be a doctor, and I don't want to be a lawyer, I don't want to be a you know, dentist, I, I don't, you know, accountant. I, 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 I said, what do you want to be? So he said, I want to be an architect. So I always dreamt of being an architect, but they don't, they don't offer any shiva. So I encouraged him. I said, so you have to be an architect. If that's what you feel that you should be doing... Obviously, you know, we made a say that he should be able to, to, to learn as much as he can. But he went to architect school, and today he's a very successful architect. He's doing very well, and he's very happy. He has a mishpacha, and he's happy. If you know what you want to be, then do it. Assuming that, it's, that it makes sense, and it's viable, and it's mutter, then that's what you should do. If you could find Hatzlacha in learning... And you wanna, and you just get that seatbook from just sitting and learning. Then, then you should stay in in Kailo the rest of your life, and that's the most amazing thing possible. Somebody once came to me and he said that in the early years when he was still in, in here in in Beis Medrash, and he, he said that he went to a Kailo like a it was like an out of town Kailo. You know, they have a, in many many Jewish communities they have these out of town a small maybe 6 to 20 guys 20 is already very big but 6 to 12 guys maybe even less and he says I went there just to visit he happened to be in the city that this Kailo was in and he says there was such a simcha there he says these guys had nothing they, they, had, they were making no parnasa they were very poor but I never saw a happier group of people in my life they were singing and they were so into it and they so they were just like drinking it up and they, you just felt that this was a room of people that were passionate about life and passionate about what they were doing. And because of that, he decided to dedicate his life and he's still learning very, very sharp. If you want to go into Chinuch, Chinuch is a, a very, very rewarding career. I don't think there's a, a job that provides more sifuk than chinuch. 
if you're in a, if it's a good chinuch, I'm not talking about chinuch of, you know, you know, but chinuch that, you know, with, with chinuch, like, like here in Yeshiva, to be able, like I have the opportunity to, to have such amazing Talmidim who are so fine and so amazing. There's no Sipa Kanefesh like this. It's, you know, there's none. Kailal, Chinach, Rabbanus, maybe, but, or whatever. Whatever it is that, that you feel is you. Not that you, your parents told you to do and not that you're, all your friends are doing, but something that you yourself feel is me. It speaks to me. And it's hard to find those things. It's very hard. And sometimes, you know, we're late bloomers and it takes us longer to figure out what we want to do and what we're going to be good at. But if you do have a hunch, then don't just let that go and, you know, put a band-aid over it and, and pretend that it's not there and do something else. You have to be able to go after it and give it a chance and, and try to allow it really to, to happen. So you don't later on in life regret what you didn't do. It might be business, it might be accounting, it might be starting your own, uh, your own firm, it might be starting the next art school. Whatever it is, you have to really be passionate about it. These were two individuals that I was close with. And the Tzadashava between Rabbi Siegel and Rabbi Zlatowitz were, they were very different. Very different. But they both had that glimmer in their eye. They were always, their eyes were always shining with a mission. Their eyes were never depressed or sad. They just wanted to do exactly what they were doing. They realized that the Rabbi Shalom gave them the opportunities to be at this time, at this moment, able to do what they wanted, and they, were, they took the ball and ran with it. They mortgaged their house. They spent nights, late nights, trying to make payroll. It wasn't easy. It wasn't things in life that are worthwhile are very often the product of great mysterious nefesh. But this is the greatest opportunity that you have this time in your life to think. You have a whole summer now. You have June, July, August. It's a long summer vacation. And we have to learn. We have to come to davening at a normal time. And we have to... We have to do whatever, whatever else we're doing in our Seder Ayayim. But I'm going to give you some summer homework. I'm going to give it to myself as well. To think constantly, what is my mission in life? And you can, throughout life, also change your mission. Just because you start doing something, you know, the second that it's not fulfilling anymore, or you feel like, you know, you could do something different or better, that's fine also. But you should never, ever just live today because of what was yesterday. You have to re-examine, re-evaluate, talk to Rabbeim, talk to people that you respect, people that have that special passion for what they do. And that's what we should be doing over the summer. Think about this. Am I, is what I'm doing the right thing for me? Am, have I found my niche? Have I found my special place? My special, not just the Maiseish. Maiseish, we're all doing well. Baruch Hashem, if you're still here on the last day of the Zman, that means you got the Maiseish right. But the question is, is it matching up? Is it locking into my Pekudasi? Because that's ultimately going to be the din that we give in Shemaim after 120. Forget about in Shemaim. We're going to give it to ourselves, this din. Because in your Neshama, you know if you're happy, are you getting up in the morning with a Geshmak? This is what I was built for? Or am I getting up in the morning sluggish and eh, lazy and not, not happy, not, not interested, burned out? If that's where we're holding, then we're doing something wrong. We have to re- readjust, recalibrate our neshama and recalibrate our life and it's fine to do that this is the time in your life that you could do it the, the best later on when you're in your 
late 20s, 30s, 40s. You could do it, but it's very hard. There were Yechidim that didn't. In fact, we're, we're living in a building of somebody that, uh, that did just that. Dr. Lander was a man with a mission, but his mission started when he was 54 years old. And he told me once, I, I was sitting with him when he, when he wanted me to, to be the mashkiach here, so we had a meeting in Rabbi Lander's office in Arachayim, myself and Dr. Lander and Rabbi Lander, and, and then I drove Dr. Lander home to his house in Forest Hills, and we were sitting in the car outside of his home for a long time, and he, uh, he, was, he saw that I was a little bit on the fence. I was very happy in Kamenetz, um, and I didn't know if I, you know, should make the move, shouldn't make the move. Anyway, he told me that when I was 54 years old, he said, I had a family I was supporting. I had four jobs. He had four very good jobs. He was in YU. He was the dean of uh, the graduate school, I think, in YU, and he was on the presidential uh, advisory commission. He was in Notre Dame. He had some position. He had like really four very and city. Co- he, he had very, very hush of a jobs. He was probably making a decent living from those jobs. But he always had this dream about starting this Jewish college, Toro College. And he spoke to a few people here and there. They thought he was absolutely insane. There's no need for it. No one's going to come. Everybody, there's already, you know, that population has already been catered to and served. And you don't, you have nothing to contribute. And he came home. He said to me, he said, I came home to my wife and I said, this is what I want to do. He says, time, I got to do it now. I don't have time anymore to keep waiting and procrastinating and it's never going to get easier. I want to do it. And she said to me, he said, Bernie, if this is your dream, then do it. And I'm behind you. And he left his jobs. He, he quit all his jobs. His kids were already used to eating and being clothed. And so that could not have been very easy for him. But by hook or by crook, somehow he was able to start up to our college on a shoestring budget. It was not an easy road. There were a lot of problems early on, very, a lot of turbulence. There, was, uh, there were money issues, and then somebody embezzled hundreds of thousands of dollars in a very elaborate scheme. It literally almost you know, killed. Turo was almost you know, assassinated 20 times. And he just kept on going. He was 54, he was 64, he was 74, he was 84. When he started Lander College, he must have been in his, in his late 80s. He could not see. He, had, he, he was legally blind. And this piece of land was available. Seven acres of land, the swamp land. No one built anything on it. I remember when I was in Arachayim, you know, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, this whole block was boarded up. It was like condemned by the Board of Health. There was nothing, there was weeds growing as high as the eye could see. No architects many times. You have a, a square block of midtown of, of, of in, in New York City, undeveloped land. You know, you would know how valuable this is. I mean, one 18-foot row house today costs, you know, upwards of $900,000. Here you have seven acres of land. Nobody understood how it was possible to build anything. Everything that you put in this, in this soil, it just sank. It was, just, it, was a, it was a swamp. Dr. Lander bought it. He got the best architects or whatnot, and they, they shot these piles into the, deep into the, fa- into, the, into the ground, as deep as could be. And all of a sudden, he built this building. It's sinking, but it, it's, it's still up. I hope uh, it just stays up until I'm ready to retire. And, um, but uh, it's, it's quite an amazing thing. We're living in, in somebody's dream. People told, I, I heard people, I know people on the board of Toro College, when they were talking about starting Lander College for Men. They were very successful already. Toro College, you know, 20,000 students all over the world. They said, you're crazy. You cannot build this thing. It's not, no one's going to come to it. And we don't have the money for it. You have to, they, he was going to take out like a $40 million uh, bond from the city, borrow money, and we, it's never going to be, it's not a fun, it doesn't make sense. They, he said, the person told me, he said, we almost literally have to wrestle him to the ground to get him not to do this. We thought it was a complete act of insanity. It will never happen. 
And he fought back, and he won. And now there's a Lander College of Men. We're almost 20 years old, and Baruch Hashem, we have amazing Talmidim, and we've had amazing Talmidim, we will have amazing this is This is the product of one man's dream. We're living in a dream. This should be a mirage. We should really be walking on, on, on a swamp right now. But he had the dream and he had the vision to do this. These are great men. Great men aren't born great men. And you don't even have to be brilliant to be a great man. If you're not brilliant and you're not rich and you're not, you know, the coolest guy, it's fine. I don't think any of them were. They just were able to focus on what they needed to do in life and they never, ever stopped. There was no vacations there was no, uh, there was no uh, partying. There was no, they just did what they wanted to do and what they needed to do. And that's what enabled all three of these individuals to live a life that was so fruitful and so full of accomplishment and so rich. And that could be all of us. We just have to figure out what our personal pekudasa is. What does the Rabbi Shalom want from me? That's what you have to ask yourself. Now, there's certain givens. We all, the Rebbe Hashem definitely wants us to daven every day, three times a day, with a lot of kavanah. He definitely wants us to learn. The question is, what else? Is it just learning? Is it just chesed? Is it just starting an organization? Is it being an accountant? That's fine also. If you're a shoemaker, that's also good. If that's what you feel you're you're great at, and you love everything, every minute of it, then that's amazing. That's the, the biggest bracha. If sometimes you find people, they just love what they do. I was sitting at a fast in Toronto the other night, and there was a simple guy, he was like a, he lived in Long Island, and um, I think he was like a, he had like a Russian accent. I said, what, what, are you, what do you do for a living? What do you do? He says, he says, my whole life I was a professional musician. And he says, I didn't get wealthy from it. He says, but I loved every minute of it. I loved what I did. I, made, I brought simcha to people by, by chasmus, by bar mitzvahs. I played in, a, in an orchestra, you know, in, in concerts. He says, I didn't get rich from it, but I, I loved it. I just retired, he says, but I, I loved it. That's amazing. That's my seyeshev kudasai. I'm not saying that we all have to be Dr. Landers. I'm not saying we have to be Rabbi Zlatowicz. That's not... That's not, a, that's not an attainable goal for many of us or for any of us. These are individuals that, you know, one in a, in a trillion. But we have to find what makes us happy, what makes us feel good, what makes our neshama shine. And whatever that is, just focus on it and don't stop. Don't let the naysayers come after you and say, ah, you know, you can't make Parnassah from that. It might be true, and you have to, obviously, again, you have to speak to Rabbeim and speak to... But don't let people tell you what you can't do. If this is what you want to do, we could figure out a way that you can make Parnassah from it, hopefully, and you'll be matzliach in it, and, you'll, and you have to find that. That is your goal in life. That's your goal this summer. If you don't know yet what it is that you really want to do, think about it. Be misbeining. Have a little bit of misbeinness. Think instead of, you know, when you take a bus or a train or a plane, instead of opening up a book or a safe or a magazine or whatever, just think. The Pundar once went on a, on, a, on a bus and there was a yeshiva bacher that was sitting and learning a safer. And the goes over to him and the bacher thought that, you know, the would like be so proud of him. He says, why are you learning a safer? He says, well, you know, I don't know, I don't like, want to learn. He says, he, says, he says, is there anything wrong with once in a while just thinking? You could think also. I'm not saying this is against learning, but there's some, like on a plane, I was just on a plane for, you know, you, just, you could just think. You're, not, you're like sort of just strapped into a seat and you, you have the opportunity to th- think. Think about this. Who am I? What am I? Why did the Rabbi Shalom put me here? What does he want from me personally? Not from my friends, not from my parents. What does he want from me? What do I want from me? And once we figure that out, we will be the happiest people in the world. Those are the people that are... Ha- happiness is not a result of being wealthy. Happiness is not a result of, 
of uh, doing cool stuff and, and showing on Facebook, you know, all the cool places you were this summer. Happiness is when a person feels productive. That is ultimately the greatest happiness that a person... If you feel productivity and you feel you're accomplishing and you feel that you're really successful at what you do, that is the greatest simcha. Rav Hirsch has that famous word, that simcha, sameach is the same, same word really as sameach with a tzadi. Sam, a sin and a tzadi are very close. Sameach means to, like, to sprout, to grow. Because simcha is that feeling like I'm growing, I'm steiging, I'm doing something that really is making me feel special and feel important and feel that I'm being productive. That is what brings happiness to a person. That's what we have to figure out in life. If we could figure that out in life, wow, that would be like the most amazing life in the world. That's my bracha to you at the end of the Zman. We had Baruch Hashem, I think, a very, very good year. The summer should be a good summer, a healthy summer, a productive summer. But the greatest productivity will be not from what we do this summer, but from what we have thought about over the summer and what we have decided to do for the rest of our life. May the Rebbein Shalom give us the siyat, the shmaya, and the bracha to be able to have clarity in our decisions, to be able to have the siyat, the shmaya, to take our plans, to take our, our decisions that we have made and let them have shefa, bracha, vatzlacha, let there be a tzmicha, a growth, and a, and a thriving, and a prospering in whatever we, uh, we, whatever we set out for ourselves in our life. And amitz Hashem, it will be for the nachas of ourselves, our yeshiva, and for the entire Kal Yisrael.